Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Anoush Shikalian about the fallout from the Autumn Statement, Zan Rice talks to Daniel Trilling about migration into fortress Europe, and John Ellidge, Philip Morn, and Rhiannon Lucy Coslett talk about private schools and privilege. It's the week of the Autumn Statement. Traditionally quite a small affair, but it's taken on huge significance in recent years. It's also considered this year to be the big final fiscal statement of the coalition. I'm joined by George Eaton and Anusha Kalian to discuss it. George, um, you were watching the statement, you lucky, lucky person, you. Um, let's start off by saying, how did Osborne look? What was, you know, what kind of, he didn't bring a kind of austerity chancellor vibe to it. He, bring, he brought a kind of good times are here again feel, didn't he? Yes, he did. And um, anyone watching it uh, could have guessed, you know, there's an election only only five ways, uh, only five months away. Uh, and even by Osborne standards, and of course, as well as Chancellor, he is the Conservatives' main political strategist. It was a, a, a statement sort of brimming with political intent. So it was aimed really at um, minimising the Conservatives' weaknesses, as they see it on, on the NHS and on um, uh, wealth taxes. So he said, will be spending more on the NHS too. Um, he's announced what is really his own version of the mansion tax with these uh, new charges on uh, on higher new stamp, stamp duty charges on, on, on the most expensive properties. And then it was aimed at maximising their strengths, so saying only we can be trusted to finish the job of deficit reduction. And Labour's in this difficult position where it started the parliament by saying that Osborne was uh, cutting too far and too fast. Now it's attacking him for borrowing too much um, but it also uh, would cut at a slower rate in the next parliament and leave room to borrow for investment, uh, all of which it, it makes perfect economic sense. Um, but try explaining that uh, to the average voter. As I say, you can't put that on a leaflet, can you? Um, Anoush, I'm also interested in how, what was the re- response both from Labour and Tory backbenchers? You know, how, how was this came across to other people in parliament? Um, well, I think um, there was definitely a sense of seeing um, George Osborne uh, moving on to Labour territory in a way. It's something that George wrote uh, yesterday. Um, so there was this idea of him trying to have sort of the Tory version of the mansion tax and um, also talking about giving money to the NHS. But I think what Labour 
Labour MPs were saying was actually uh, it wasn't as comprehensive as what Labour wants to do because it's, there's no new money being spent. Um, so he wants to scrape this two billion pounds a year together from um, sort of efficiency savings from other Whitehall departments. So it's not really um, a positive uh, a positive idea for for the health service. So I think that um, Labour MPs were feeling quite you know quite optimistic actually because they see that that, that the Tories cannot be trusted with the NHS. So. And I'm also interested to know, kind of, let's take the bigger picture, George, and look back at um, Osborne over the course of this whole parliament. So he wanted to clear the deficit completely. Um, He wanted to keep the UK's AAA credit rating, which we lost for a year. Has he, I mean, you mentioned in your column this idea that he sort of turned into a hyper Keynesian Mm. now. By his own standards that he set out at the beginning of the parliament, how has he fared? Uh, Very badly. Um, so he originally promised, yes, to have balanced the books, um, that is to say, to have eliminated the structural deficit by 2014-15. Uh, he's now not hoping to do that until 2017-18. As you say, he lost the AAA credit rating, uh, which he made such play of before the election. And of course, he's failed on uh, on growth and wages as well. That um, everyone forgets. Uh, he didn't. He didn't somehow say yes. We're going to have three years of stagnation, and then the, the economy will bounce back. He was predicting that we'd have healthy growth from um, twenty ten onwards. Um, and of course, he inherited an economy that was growing uh, fairly fast from from Labour. And uh, a lot of co- economists agreed. Did huge damage with the VAT rise, uh, cuts to infrastructure spending. And uh, the rhetoric around um, uh, your debt crisis, which had a sort of chilling effect on on confidence. Uh, what happened in the middle of the parliament is that I think he partly recognised the damage that uh, some of his measures were doing, slowed down rather than try rather than accelerating the cuts to try and sort of chase his targets. Uh, and that is partly to explain uh, uh, partly um, accounts of the bounce back. Uh, but of course, Osborne, Osborne won't say that, so he still plays. Uh, the the austerity chancellor, even though, albeit as a result of economic failure rather than of political choice, um, he's um, he's been far more profligate than uh, than expected in 2010. And Anush, here's what interests me: is that you know we've heard that he, then privately, George Osborne is, is quite relaxed about immigration. You know, he sees the undoubted economic benefits of having young, economically active people coming to this country. But he's very much out of step with where the gravity of his party is taking him. Do you think in the next parliament, if the Tories get either, a, I know it's very unlikely, an, uh, an overall majority or end up in another coalition, that he his his disjuncture from that kind of hard right, particularly the Eurosceptic wing of the party, is going to become a problem for him trying to get measures through that he wants? I actually don't think it will be a problem for him, because if you think about it, if the Tories get in again, he's going to be their champion because it's it's thought that if they win then they're winning on the economy and he's the chancellor so I think he'll have a lot of weight a lot of um, influence in the cabinet then um, and perhaps also if if the Tories deliver a win then their backbenchers will be less will be less uh, cantankerous about these these EU immigration <laughs> I think issues. I quite hopeful isn't isn't it? It? <laughs> it's cantankerous that yeah. they've been this parliament. <laughs> Um, and George, I'll pick up that point you said about wages, because this is a really interesting point is that, you know, we've heard from Labour so much about the cost of living crisis. Partly that was paid to the idea that prices were rising faster than wages. Now that, that now looks like after a long period that's reversing. But equally well, the tax receipts weren't as high as we thought. One of the reasons of that being that people are underemployed, they're in, you know, um, zero hours contracts, they're in part time work. Is there a hope there for Labour that they might be able to make those smaller economic messages? 
work for them. Yes, I think there is, because even though uh, the economy in, in the last uh, year or so has grown faster than, uh, than people feared, uh, and, and as you say, uh, wages are finally starting to, to crawl above inflation, Labour can still say you are worse off at the end of the parliament than you were at the beginning. And I think that's the first time uh, that's ever happened, actually. Ed Wool says he's, he sort of looks at the data as the first time it's ever happened in, in, in a whole parliament. Um, and that gives them a strong attack line against the Conservatives. And the more the Conservatives say, well, look at all these, uh, the record number of jobs we've created, um, the economy is bigger than it was um, in, in, in 2010, we're back above our, our pre-crisis peak, the more uh, Labour can say, well, why aren't people feeling it then? Uh, I think that's an important point, that actually these these uh, data points don't really relate to people's people's own experience. And, and um, a lot of their consumption is still based on debt. So I think the Conservatives need to strike this very careful balancing act between persuading voters that the economy is better off than it was in, in, in 2010 without appearing to uh, sort of give the impression that, uh, that they're, they're complacent and they somehow think that um, everyone's uh, feeling cheerful. That's funny, isn't it? Because it's the corollary of what happens with immigration, where you say, although this is the macro picture, mm. people who feel that their schools are under pressure, that jobs are being lost to uh, Eastern European migrants, you c- it's very hard to make to counter that big rational argument with what people feel in their lives. I think that, that line that comes out of Labour about voters don't live their lives in the macro, isn't that right? Yeah. Um, the final thing I want to ask you, George, is just a little bit about budget cuts in the next parliament. Um most people, it's now it sort of seem to assume that austerity is, has really wreaked its terrible you know, havoc, or it hasn't, depending on, on, on your position on that. But how bad will those budget cuts be in the next parliament? They'll be very bad. So the OBR has uh, worked out that 60% of the cuts are still to come. So a lot of the time, Osborne will say, oh, the job's only half done. In fact, it's only 40% done. And of course, the easy cuts have already been made. Uh, the low-hanging fruits have been plucked. And so rather than cutting into... Some of the fat that even uh, statists will concede was there in Whitehall, they're now going to have to cut into bone. And local government in particular is going to be crunched. Uh, now, on paper, of course, all the, all the numbers add up. Um, but in practice, uh, are these cuts really going to be feasible if you get to the point where services are seriously collapsing? So um, prisons are in, are in chaos. Uh, courts aren't able to function. Uh, rubbish collections end. Um, and of course, all of this is, is premised on um, on the economy growing at the rates uh, the OBR forecast. When we know the global economic situation is is, is still pretty perilous, uh, interest rates are going to rise uh, likely soon after the election. You're not going to have uh, so the Bank of England printing money in the way it has been in this Parliament. And so, to try and pull off an even bigger fiscal tightening than we've seen in this Parliament in a in a incredibly difficult economic climate domestically and internationally looks incredibly ambitious uh especially if as osborne claims he's going to do it with no tax rises which is one reason why a lot of economists uh don't take his his uh pledges seriously and why vince cable who of course still sits around the cabinet table with george osborne as, as business secretary is uh deriding him as 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 lying basically well, uh, on that extremely pessimistic note, I think we'll leave it. Maybe next week we'll talk about something, you know, taxes on reindeers or something a bit a bit cheerier. I'll say thank you very much to George and Anoush. I'm Zan Rice, Features Editor of the New Statesman, and I'm here with Daniel Trilling, the editor of the new Humanist magazine. 
And Daniel's got a piece for us in the magazine this week about migration, a subject that's very much in the news and on the political agenda. Daniel, can you just explain to us briefly what the story's about? Um, yes, thanks. Um, so my story tries to reconstruct the route taken by refugees who arrive in Europe um, after having taken dangerous boat journeys across the Mediterranean. Um, in And they arrive in Italy. And this is looking at just one of the routes these, these refugees take uh, across Europe all the way to London, because this is, you know, it's been something very much in the news recently. Um, and a lot of the coverage has focused on Calais, just on the other side of the channel, and the, the 2,000 plus people that are there at the moment trying to uh, trying to reach the UK without the correct documents. So, really, what I wanted to do was just to look at the lives of these people and say, well, who 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 are these people, and, and, and why are they trying to take these journeys? Which, you know, they're very difficult and very dangerous. And um, yeah, that was the sort of initial idea for it. Okay. And how how did you go about the reporting for this piece? Um, so the piece draws on research that I've been doing for the best part of a year. Uh, I first visited Calais in February and I, then it was just to really see what was going on and make contact with different migrants and see if I could keep in touch with them and, and follow their journeys. Um, the piece for the New Statesman began when, when you, Zan, asked me if I knew anything about this, uh, story that had appeared in the Daily Telegraph in September where, um, a family coming back from from a trip to to Europe had had discovered a Sudanese young man hiding underneath their camper van when they arrived back in Kent, and I think as you, originally you asked me, well, do you think you could find out what happened to this young man and and, and how he's moved through the the UK asylum system? And I said, well, that's going to be difficult because everything is going to be kept very confidential for at least a few months, if not if not longer, but. I'm pretty sure I know where where this young man will have been and I can retrace the steps of a, a typical route that someone like him would have taken and draw on my interviews with with other refugees who've who've been been along that route. Okay. And in in some of these interviews which you've got in the piece um the lives and the the aspirations and the hopes of, of some of these these people who are trying to to come to to Europe not just the UK other other countries in Europe as well is um, is laid out very nicely. Um, often when, when there's a news story about migration, particularly across the, the Mediterranean, it's one of tragedy, it's one of people dying dying at sea, um, and it's presented very much in, in those terms. But the people that you spoke to, um, you, you, they don't seem to want to be pitied, um, and uh, they, they're almost approaching it from a very, very optimistic um, standpoint rather than, uh, you know, we are coming here and we need help. Um, can, can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. I mean, one thing I wanted to do with the piece was to not only show the hardships that people face as they try to find ways to get around Europe's border policies, but their resourcefulness, because, you know, these are people that have travelled thousands of um, miles. Um, they've had all sorts of obstacles placed in their way. They've risked death several times along the journey. And yet they they've managed to make trips and make crossings that I, I mean I certainly wouldn't know where to begin with it. So for example, there's there's one young man in the story who managed you know he arrived in Venice after having hidden on a 
on a passenger ship from Greece and managed to make it all the way from Venice to Calais with just, you know, after having arrived with just two euros in his pocket. So, I, I mean, you know, to just unpick how and why people have done that, I, I find fascinating. Um, for this piece, I focused on people who had come from Eritrea and Sudan. And for the most part, I think they would probably meet the legal definition of, of refugee in that they're fleeing persecution by their, their governments. Um, and they certainly have had some very difficult and very traumatic experiences along their journeys, but it's also true that one of the reasons they travel is that they, they don't just want a safe place, but they want to get on with their lives and they want to, you know, they actually want, they want the same things that any of the rest of us do. They want to sort of achieve things and, and they don't just want food and shelter, but they want perhaps a career or they want to feel like they're playing, you know, playing a useful role in society or whatever you might call it. So... You know, there was one very striking encounter I had with 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 a woman from East Africa, um, who was living rough in Calais at the time I met her, trying to get into Britain. And uh, you know, she had a story where she she was fleeing persecution by her government, who who were who were targeting the ethnic her ethnic group. But the reason she wanted to come to Britain and not say France was because she spoke English and she actually she just wanted to get on and do her PhD. And she said, well, I'm, you know, I'm 40 years old. I don't have the time to relearn, a, you know, to learn French. I already speak English and I just want to get on with it. And I think it's only when you start looking at the detail of people's lives that, that, that all of these things become apparent. Can you tell us, if, if you've got a migrant arriving across the Mediterranean in Italy, what, what is the, one of the most common routes they'd use if they were to come to the UK? Um, and in addition to that, can you, can you just explain... The, the last leg of that journey um, from from Calais to to the UK, which which is which is quite extraordinary. Sure, I think if I can remember correctly, about one hundred and sixty thousand refugees have have landed in Italy this year. Um, by no means all of them travel towards the UK. Uh, many will stay in Italy. Uh, many will try and go to Germany or Sweden or other parts of Northern Europe. Um, and it's probably good to think of. I mean, one of the things that I feel this piece tries to uncover is that there's this kind of hidden network of routes throughout Europe that the refugees know about, but the rest of us don't necessarily. Um, and one of them heads towards Britain. Um, I think a typical route would be if a refugee was rescued from the Mediterranean and landed in Sicily or, or, or the south of mainland Italy, they would try and make their way up the Italian mainland if they have money to pay for a taxi or for public transport they would do that if not they would you know maybe try and do it in stages or earn money along the way they would reach a large city in the north of Italy like Milan try and make contact with other migrants usually from their you know usually from their own home country because for obvious reasons you know they'll share a language and be able to ask people who've done the journey previously well how did you do it they'll get they'll get some advice about that um, then from Milan they would go to the south of France um, often by train um, then try and get another train up to Paris and then from Paris to Calais um, you know how quickly and easily people can do that route depends on what money they have available to them so they might be borrowing money they might have relatives who are wiring their money from elsewhere in the world um, or they might just be trying to ride the train without a ticket and hope that they don't get caught the last stage of that journey is the most difficult because they have to travel from, if they want to reach the UK, they've got to cross the channel. 
Um, and I think that's that's one of the reasons why this has become such a big news story in Britain is because there have been these very striking scenes of um, hundreds of destitute migrants living in Calais or trying to storm the ferry port to get onto the boats and lorries or having fights with one another for access to the lorries. And it, it gives the impression that somehow this, you know, the UK is unusual and that everybody is targeting Britain. Really, this, these journeys are happening all throughout Europe and the only difference is that they've hit a kind of difficult border that is actually very hard to cross. Um, so most of them aren't successful. And that's why they end up living in Calais for weeks or months at a time. Um, but what they would do to get into the UK if they can is to try and hide underneath a lorry that then goes through the Channel Tunnel or goes onto a ferry. And hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. ...to Dover. Um, it's very difficult access to the the lorry park so so what migrants will do is at night time in calais they'll go out go out to one of the lorry parks outside the town where drivers park up and have a rest or sleep or check their documents before they cross the channel and they'll try and sneak onto the lorries um it's it's dangerous for a number of reasons the lorry parks are controlled by gangs of um you know sort of organized criminal gangs who will charge migrants for access to the lorries um, they'll often also intimidate them and steal their money. Um, if you want to actually get into the back of a container lorry, you, en- you usually have to pay um, a, a people smuggler to do so. A lot of the migrants don't have the money to do that, so what they'll try and do instead is to just crawl underneath the body of a lorry and hide between the wheel axles and, and the underside of, of, of the main body. Thanks, Daniel. Just one last question. The Italian Navy has rescued about 8,000 people, I think, this year from the Mediterranean. The UK is of the view that this is actually encouraging migration and it's not a policy that they support or that the government supports. What is your view on this? Well, I think, you know, the UK government has said that it it won't support, uh, it won't give any financial or practical support to Mediterranean rescues because it considers this to be a, a pull factor, as in, uh, you know, in ordinary terms, that means that, that it will encourage more people to try and make the crossing. Um, I think this is a very cynical position taken by the government um, because they don't want to be seen to be doing anything that would encourage um, migration to Britain because the Tories were elected on this pledge to, to cap immigration. Um, and I think, first and foremost, I think, you know, Britain is part of Europe and all European states have got a moral obligation to save people. If there are people crossing and they're at risk of dying, then we should be doing whatever we could to prevent that, first and foremost. Um, Secondly, I think it's a particular problem Britain has with its relation to Europe, that it, it, it has this illusion that it can, you know, that it's kind of something separate from it and it's not part of these processes or that you know the the government's excuse for for why it it doesn't want to take part in these rescues is that it said oh we should focus on you know improving the conditions in the countries these these migrants come from so they don't feel like they have to leave and again this 
gives the impression that we don't really have much to do with what's going on in these countries. Well, I mean, you know, one of the major reasons for, for, for the increased flow of migrants across the Mediterranean is the collapse of Libya. It means there are, no, you know, um, not only are, are migrants able to cross through Libya and, and, and take boats fairly freely because, because, you know, there's no functioning sort of state there, but also ethnic minorities in Libya are fleeing in their thousands because um, they're being subject to sort of, um, you know, unprecedented racist violence. Um, and, you know, Britain is intimately connected with what's happening in Libya, like the rest of Europe. We've, you know, for, for, for years we've been, you know, we struck deals with Gaddafi for, for cheap oil and cheap gas. There's even, you know, there's literally a gas pipeline running from the coast of Libya to Sicily along exactly the route that these migrant boats are taking. Um, and then Britain was part of the, the, the NATO action that, that helped depose Gaddafi. So, you know, I'm not saying this was right or wrong, but we're already connected to what's going on there. And, you know, refugees are a consequence of, of, of some of the actions we're taking in the world today, and we should be doing what we can to support them. Thank you very much, Daniel. I'm John Elledge. I'm joined by our columnist Rhiannon Lucy Coslett and by Philip Morn to talk about private schools. Rhiannon, you wrote a piece for this week's magazine talking about what you described as the confidence gap, the sense of self-belief and entitlement that, that a private school education seems to give people. Can you tell us a bit more? There was a report from the Institute of Fiscal Studies which said that um, private school pupils go on to earn £4,500 more a year than um, pupils who went to private school, to public school, to, to state school, sorry, than pupils who went to state school, um, which I think is interesting because it even accounts for whether or not both groups went to elite universities as well, um, which implies that there's kind of a divergence that happens a lot at a much younger age. And I suppose I, I, I speculate about what I've perceived to be a confidence, confidence gap between people who went to state school and people who went to private school, particularly within the establishment. And I think that is something that's kind of um, minimising the ambitions of kids who went to state school. Certainly something that I have personal experience of. And I wanted to explore that a bit more. Um, how the kind of corridors of power c can be seen to be kind of closed off to you, depending on what kind of background you've, you've come from. And to what extent do you think this is a product of a particular style of schooling? And to what extent do you think it's just, there's kind of an all-pervasive attitude in, in private schools that, you know, the, the, the kids can kind of go on to do what they want and the world is there for the taking and that they're training up to the future leads and so on. How much do you think it's that kind of sense of expectation which is perhaps missing from some state schools as opposed to the actual sort of educational styles? I, I do think expectation comes into it in a, in a, in a huge way, actually, because um, when I think back to kind of um, year 11 at my school, so when we were about 15, we all had to do this computerised careers test. And about five people in our year came out with the same result, which was fish farmer. Mm. And everybody was a bit kind of confused by this. Why are we being told that we should be being fish farmers? You know, I was told that I should be a travel agent. And I just, when I think about that, I don't imagine that they were telling anyone who was at Eton that they should be a fish farmer or that they should be a travel agent. And it's this kind of minimising of ambition. It's like my friend said, expressed a will 
a desire to be a journalist. This was at the same school, same careers advisor. Mm. And they said, oh, why don't you be a primary school teacher? Yeah. It's this kind of mm. small shifting of your ambition downwards. It's that lack of expectation. Yeah. That That's the smart job you. as well, primary school teacher. Yeah, if you exactly. show kind of potential teachers where you're going. I think they told me I was going to be a teacher, actually. Yeah. Um, with not showing that much potential, but being quite gobby. So maybe that kind of got me on that path. I'm, I'm resisting the urge to ask how they came to fish farm because that seems such a yeah, a lot bizarre of choice. Fish farms I know, in I North Wales. I think if you said that you enjoyed um, you enjoyed spending time outdoors, uh. that was one of the results that you got. My my friend also got lorry driver's assistant, which I found kind of she wasn't even allowed to be a lorry driver; she had to be his assistant. Yeah. So I, I suppose one of the difficulties we we run into in having this conversation is that there is. An argument, I'm not necessarily subscribing to it, but there is an argument that this doesn't reflect badly on private schools. It's a failing of state schools that they are kind of putting this sort of limitation on on what they are telling their kids they can achieve. I mean, Phil, where do you stand on that one? Uh, I think that's probably true. I remember doing these ludicrous um, tests, technical cat tests, where they gave you predictions for the exams you would take. Uh, you know, your GCSEs and your A levels, and I was told I would get D's in my A levels when I was about fifteen. What, what is the purpose of telling me this? I mean, I'm sure there was one and some education list will step in. But, um, you know, I didn't. Um, and and I really didn't appreciate the kind of uh, the battering down. I think, you know, actually putting your head above the parapet is extremely risky in a state school. You know, I, I went to um, a comprehensive just outside Middlesbrough uh, where, you know, my, my primary aim was um, to get through the day without sort of having to talk about football was one thing. And also, you know, not not succumbing to violence in the playground. There was, was, was quite a lot of punching going on. Um, and I don't think I learnt very much. And actually, my attitude now is one of sort of great, great um, sadness towards my time in school. I don't feel uh, angry about people who went to private schools. I feel envious of them. Um, because I listen to the music and all the stuff that they, you know, the music classes, the languages, that's a real big one. You know, I don't speak a foreign language. I love to. And they seem to have been taught this stuff properly. Not everybody. It's complicated. But... Um, there is that. And the question of, of confidence, you know, our personalities are quite complicated and, and I'm, I'm kind of, um, I think I'm quite a confident person where it doesn't matter, but an extremely shy person where it does. So I would never ask about, you know, salary, monies, job, things like this. You know, I'd never put myself forward for anything because I, I think, um, I think the real, the real, the real difference between, um, Maybe it is a wider class um, question rather than one specifically about schools. But it's always seemed to me that if you come from a kind of working class or a lower middle class background, really you, you have an immense awareness of all that you're not, everything that's on telly, everything that you can't do. That's And that's how I was always taught to think. I think it was sort of just grin and bear it, you know, it's not, not for the likes of you kind of thing. And that might sound a bit extreme and it maybe it happens in a quiet sort of a way, but that's in the schools. Yeah, I do think the thing about money is quite interesting, asking for a salary increase, for instance. Um, in a similar way to kind of the gender pay gap can be partially attributed to women not being encouraged to kind of be assertive in the workplace and not feeling confident kind of asking for more money. I do think if you've been to a state school, if you've been to like a comprehensive and you finally feel like you've sort of crawled your way up into this industry that you've wanted to work in and it's taken, you know, all this effort, you sort of don't want to do anything to jeopardise it once you're there. I have a friend who works at a national newspaper and she's a working class scouser and she was just saying I just feel so bloody lucky to be here that I don't push for anything I don't want to rock the boat because that could jeopardize it all 
And I do think that's something that certainly a lot of people I've spoken to from state schools definitely feel. I, I think the question of class is an interesting one, though, because I think it is quite difficult to disentangle the nature of the schooling from, from other factors such as class. I mean, I'm, I am one of the 7%, I'm afraid. I did go to a private school. Ooh. Yes, right. <laughs> I, I get that when I'm just walking down the street. It's, 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 it's class war, that's what it is. It's damn class war. Um, but I'm not actually from a particularly posh background. I'm from reasonably middle class in the sort of literal sense rather than the, 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 the telegraph sense. Um, and when I am... When I went up to when I went off to Cambridge, where for the first time in my life I went to people who've been I met people who've been to really posh schools, I did feel kind of below them in some sense, which is an absolutely ridiculous thing to say. But you can't quite even with, from a private school. I still kind of got that, and a lot of them went on to have frankly more successful careers than me early on because they had a confidence that I lacked. If it was just education. I, I don't know. I just well, I mean, it's... you're also talking centuries. If you're talking about the aristocracy, you're just mm. talking of kind of built up centuries of built up senses of entitlement that have been passed down for generations mm. i don't know if you've been watching life is tough on bbc2 but like the sense of history that this family has it's a documentary about a family living in a stately home in i think cornwall or devon the sense of pressure and the sense of history and the sense of prestige mm. that this arist- aristocrat- aristocratic family has is kind of, mm. you know, I do think that's definitely a factor. Yeah, it's, it's, totally. it's the ability to walk into a building like the, the House of the House of Parliament and not instantly feel uncomfortable yes. is a really big thing. How do we? This is a big conversation for three of us sat in the room doing a podcast. But how do we fix this? An unplanned podcast. Yeah, the un- listeners un- may be able podcast. to gauge. Yeah, we're, we're going to come up with some real good solutions here, guys. <laughs> Um, but if it isn't just a matter of, you know, the actual mechanics of the education, if it is a kind of class attitudes thing, is there not a risk that we could abolish private schooling altogether and you'd still get the same people gathering in the same rooms and with that kind of class networking going on? Can we, will getting rid of the private schools, if that was an option, would that actually change anything? I don't know. I think I think it would. I think if you look at Finland, which has done it, um, the standard of their general standard of their education has gone up. Um, I also think it's really beneficial for you to go to school and in, indeed spend your life with a great variety of people from different backgrounds and from different experiences. It makes you a better rounded human being. It makes you a better politician if we're talking about the government. And I think, yes, class will always be a factor, but um, why not have more mixing? Why not have more mixing between the classes? I think while you've got this segregation that begins at such a young age, um, it's not going to it's not going to change anything. It's not going to get any better. Can we do you think we can improve things by providing more kind of support within state schools i mean sort of actually sort of sending people into state schools to say no you can do this you should apply to oxford or whatever it may be i think it's hard i think i think that would be i mean when you look at kind of the oxbridge system and how kind of if you go to uh, particular private schools you'll have someone coaching you for that interview mm. especially mm. and you know state schools don't have that they're surprised if one person gets in from mm. the sixth form and i think Yes, that would be beneficial. I'm interested by the the old direct grant system as well. I mean, that seemed to have seems to have been, you know at the time really improved social mobility. 
Um, Loads of stuff we've done has improved social mobility. There's yeah. well, the educational maintenance allowance being one of the more obvious ones. I oh mean, yeah, well of course. Like Two thirds of my you know year in sixth form took that. I don't yep. know how this will have affected numbers there now, um, but I imagine that it will have done because so many people talked about that. Even in just in terms of like street cred, you know, there are serious issues about people bringing money into the house and not working and so on. But, you know, people stop saying, like, oh, I only come for the EMA. I mean, even if that's not really <laughs> true, people would say that, you know, and you think, like, yeah, are those kids now are not going to come. Did you get any support with your university application out of interest? I didn't, know. I was told by my head of year that I would never go to university because he thought I was too lazy and interested in other things. Um, Remind I, us which university you went to? I went to, to Oxford. So I'm kind of interested to know, like, did you just think, no, screw you, I'm going to do this? Um Yes, a certain degree. Um, I did. I was also very lucky in that. Two, I think, as far as I'm aware, two people from my school have been to six forms a bit better, but from my school have been to Oxbridge. And the one who went went the other person went the year before me, and kind of I saw the the path that she you know mm. took, and so I kind of just copied her basically. No, oh, I thought you were being brave. It turns out you're just you're just, you're just you're, following you're a woman. Just plagiarism. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> no, um, but no, there's not guidance um really there might there might be there's careers advisors who kind of can do this kind of stuff in a little way but when i heard about you know friends friends that i met there and and what they'd been told you know which college to apply to i did you know what they call an open application and just said i don't i, I don't know what the difference is so just put me wherever but they um you know they say you've got a better odds if you do here and also there's an anti you know and against our school kind of thing so you should go to one of these places they'd be less likely to expect your application and i mean it's it's um some multi-million dollar industry you know there's a lot of thought goes into this yeah. Rhiannon do you think that there is a responsibility on on universities to kind of to get more involved in this and have you know active outreach programs or even even quotas oh so. totally absolutely I mean I went to UCL and I always wanted to go to UCL and I still had the feeling while I was there that I was filling some kind of quota. Um, I started off doing a law degree, which is obviously was was very much dominated by people from a private school background, and I I remember them all talking about what GCSEs and A levels they'd got, what results they'd got, what subjects they'd studied, and my GCSEs were kind of they weren't shit by any means, but they weren't great. They were a bit mediocre compared to the kind of eleven A stars that everybody else had who was there. And I remember thinking, oh, God, I'm just filling this state school Welsh comprehensive, you know, up north quota for mm. them. And, and and I do think, like, so if you are going to have quotas, I think you have to be very careful. Did you follow your, your friend in sort of thinking, I'm not going to talk about it, though, I don't want to rock the boat? Because that's very much the way. I didn't want to be the guy with the chip on his shoulder, so well, I no, almost just went silent not. on the subject. I mean, in the end, I just switched course at the end of the year. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, quietly and kind of... <laughs> Um, not, not reluctantly at all, but, um, I do think that, I do think, yeah, that could, that sense, it was the first time, like you said, when you went to university and you were first confronted by the sheer class differences and inequalities in this country, it was kind of a real watershed moment mm. because up until that point, I didn't even know these people existed and I doubt they knew I existed. It's amazing how knotted we get on this. I, um, interviewed novelist Jeff Dyer earlier in the year and we talked about this and how the second you step out of the UK this just disappears when I'm abroad I just don't even think about this for a second and then I get back to passport control and even in the queue it's all back. A, a Russian guy I met in a pub once asked me to explain the British class <laughs> and when, when you try and sort of put it into words it's incredibly difficult because you're saying well it's kind of it's not really about money it's about 
education a bit. It's about work and it, geography. It's just it, it kind of all this different stuff bundled together. But it's really not an easy thing to explain. And yet we all obsess about it in this country. It's a very British thing. On which cheerful note, I will say thank you to Rhiannon and Lucy Cosworth and to Philip Mon. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn. Mm-hmm.